Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Aya, my name's Steph, and you're listening to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. My question is. Are people fundamentally good? Okay, here comes the show. I remember, question everything. Hello everybody and welcome to Dame Baptiste Questions Everything, a podcast where myself, comedian, writer and occasional actor Dame Baptiste, my producer friend Howard Cohen, aka The Hizza, and a mix of very special guests pose the questions that need to be asked and we are talking everything from Steph, by way of Instagram, asks the question, are people fundamentally good? Which is a great question, Steph, and uh, a very good question to ask when you have uh, contacted us via Instagram. I think that, uh, I guess, good and bad and morality is a human construct, so it can be very subjective what we define as good and bad. I don't think human beings are predisposed for conflict or aggression necessarily, because we don't have protruding claws and we don't have mandibles that can bite through bone. And um, yeah, most of the uh, tools that we use to commit bad things or evil normally require tools external from ourselves and i guess they are motivated by fear so i wouldn't say that human beings are necessarily fundamentally good i just think that human beings can be subject to fear and the way they tend to behave in the face of that fear can determine uh whether or not they're moral as far as humanity goes so step hope that helps is a good question even if people aren't good you gave us a very good question and keep them coming guys no question is too good too bad too evil or too virtuous and if you do like the show please rate and review it on apple Podcasts or follow us on spotify or wherever you get your podcast from and you'll never miss an episode where you can hear all of our very special questions being asked and answered by our very special guests with that being said on today's show is a renowned fashion and lifestyle influencer who is behind the internationally scottish-based blog turned instagram diary she's best known by her followers for her orange hair glasses and painting her entire house orange she creates dopamine-fueled campaigns through creative storytelling and colourful content creation. Please welcome Ms. Sherry Scott, a.k.a. Forever Yours, Betty, to the podcast and the show. Hey! Hi! Hiya! How you doing? I'm good, Sherry. How are you? Before I continue, which of your uh, sobriquets would you prefer me to use? Sherry or Betty, whatever comes to you naturally. To be honest, I love having both names. It's good to have a few aliases, yeah. So it's important, I think. Yeah, I see Betty is like my drag persona, I guess. Oh, nice. <laughs> everybody, everybody should have one. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And it makes so much sense how that even came around after I got my neurodivergent, like, ADHD and autism diagnosis it's very clear that there was, is those two sides to me and I wasn't just being a Gemini <laughs> <laughs> well I think I mean you, I mean a Gemini is a I mean that's only uh, two personalities but I think we can all have as many as we choose depending on what space we choose to exist and thrive in whatever I think whatever makes people feel better about themselves um Sherry slash Bay, do you think people uh, fun, can be fundamentally good? Um, I think we we all start out that way. Yeah. I think that we all start out with that blank slate and then it's just like what life comes to us that can kind of shape us for the good and shape us for the bad. Like, And I think that it's it, it kind of also comes down to like um, nature and nurture debate and generational trauma uh-huh. and things like that that also all come into play because sometimes like generational trauma is a real thing and you have and, and, and even though you start off life on a blank slate there can be conditioning that is there from past experiences or the the environment in which you're kind of growing up in which can um get in the way of your choices but i don't necessarily think that either those are like good or bad they're just the ones that are normalized that from your you experiences right yeah, yeah. You uh-huh. right. Exactly, at yeah. the time because I mean, because that's the thing is that like good and bad versus right and wrong, they can be two very different concepts because doing what's exactly. right for you, depending on the situation you're in in order to survive, might be socially be deemed more, as wrong. bad or yeah, morally objectionable. Doesn't mean that your intentions are necessarily malicious. So that's a good answer from a mm-hmm. good person. But uh, 
Yeah, so we, we thank you for that. Um, obviously, uh, my producer friend Howard Cohen is uh, absent from the episode today. He's uh, feeling a little bit sick. I hope you get better, Howard. Um, but if he was he'll here, get soon. yeah, he'd get better soon. But if he was here, he would definitely say welcome to the podcast. But he'd also say that now is time for a question, as the format of this show dictates. So, uh, Bessie is our very esteemed guest. We'd like to invite you to ask the first question, which can be any question you'd like, which we'd like to discuss for about maybe twenty minutes or so, and some change. And then I'd like to pose a Perfect. question to you, uh, which we could discuss for the same amount of time. And I would love for you to tell our listeners who are unaware of your good works where they can find out more about those past, present, and future. How does that sound? Amazing. Fantastic. That's good. Well, well, the floor is yours uh, and the space is yours to ask whatever question you'd like. Okay. Well, I always say that I wish people could feel the way that orange feels to me. And I always used to be able to describe it as um, so it it feels like home. It feels safe. It is happiness. It is comfort. It is excitement. Um, And then again, after my diagnosis, I realized that is just my full expression of autistic and neurodivergent joy. And I was having a conversation with a friend and just expressing how I wish that everyone could experience what the everyday the everyday joy that can really become like all consuming and the more I talked to um, both my neurodivergent and my neurotypical friends there was a lot of um, really interesting discussions of the very minute everyday things that we don't um, harness and take as much joy from or like share because at the end of the day like people are so scared to be like considered silly and cringe culture is like big everyone's scared about looking silly and being but joy unadulterated joy is just (laughs) life's most beautiful things and i think the best thing about joy is watching people's faces as they express it Uh and so my question is to you what everyday things bring you complete unadulterated joy (laughs) Um, That's, that's a good question it's a good question. It doesn't seem like it should be a difficult question, but I think that nowadays it is a difficult question. It's a much more difficult <laughs> question than people think because I think a lot of the time when uh, yeah people are tasked with what brings you, there's people say what makes them happy. That is going to be like very temporary states. But when you say what brings someone unbridled joy, which would allow them to express said joy without having to be conscientious of who's watching them or how they have to kind of behave in a particular situation, is a uh, well, it's a rare phenomenon for a start. But see, the thing is, even the most serious people, like I've been in business meetings and I've been um, in like, there have been very stoic, serious people. Uh-huh. And I've said like an idea that they like. And it's like this light comes in their eyes and they do a little tap with their fingers and there's like a little like movements in their mouth. Like, and it's Mr. Like, Burns, hmm. excellent. Uh, exactly <laughs> and it's like they can just let even have little twitches in their face uh-huh. i love those little moments where people can control themselves because something just excites them and i think that those are the things that get glossed over in life because it's like they happen so fast yeah that we don't harness them enough i get it well the thing is uh for me i guess it's probably it might, it might be arguably a easier thing for me to describe because as a stand-up comic, that's a, a state of being or chasing with people all the time. So a lot of the time, I guess it's a reciprocal uh, reaction where I take joy from bringing that out of other people. Um, I think a lot of the time people have the mistaken idea that comics, when they're together, are constantly cracking jokes and constantly experiencing joy and laughter when the it, it, it could have been nothing further from the truth. And I think a lot of the time for a lot of comics, based on the whole, we also refer to as tears, tears of a clown complex. A lot of the time when we are lacking, yes. joy, we kind of seek that from other people. So I'd say initially, I guess my work would be one of the things that gives me unbridled joy. And one of the reasons why is because it's being able to be the catalyst for or to kind of uh, elicit that uh, expression of joy from other people. Um okay. It's it definitely becomes uh, an obsession to an extent to get that out of people because most comics can tell you when you're in a room when there might be like between maybe could be one hundred it can be a thousand people if ninety nine people are laughing in a room of a hundred people or nine hundred ninety nine people are laughing the one person that isn't having the same experience tends to stick out more than anybody else and a lot of the time 
you might zero in on that person to find out why what you're saying is failing to resonate with them. And you can't always necessarily predict it, but why they might be that way. But I'd say, yeah, initially, comedy is definitely the act of trying to find an example of unbridled joy in people. So, and by that token, it gives me joy as well. I love that answer. But I also think that, like, this is why I think that it's such an interesting question of discussion, because then it leads me on to, like, but what? Like, but then is it healthy? Because when I really started to look at it, my work gives me a lot of joy as well but then I think it's so important to also have like these little pockets of joy that we can go to that like having your work being your pocket of joy isn't always going to be the most healthy situation Uh so it's also so that's why like I know when people ask me why I was so obsessed with orange and you know that I do fill my life around it because it's it's I very much resonate to what you're talking about, the tears of a clown thing, because that's one of my biggest joys, as I've said, is seeing other people's joys. So I completely understand that. But I um, would love to know as well, is there any, like, is there any acts or um, situations or little little things that you do that are just for you? That it, Because that's a very giving part of joy yeah. like what is something that you do that's just for you yeah it's a, it's a good question but i guess i guess it's a good question but i think it maybe leads me on to a larger philosophical one is that can is is individual joy healthy as well because i think when i do ponder the things that do give me joy they do tend to involve some level of uh i suppose reflection or reciprocity from another party because and, I mm-hmm. might, and that might be down to that because we're a social species and i think you have to initially observe joy yourself and then uh, be able to kind of mimic the same pattern of behavior to elicit it from other people. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. it does make sense. So I'd say, yeah, being able to laugh at some, some the minutiae of life does bring me a lot more unbridled joy. I think it's maybe because I notice the little things and I think being able to pay attention yeah. to those um, gives me joy. It's the little things that make it. Like one of my biggest things that I love that brings me joy is see when you've been traveling um, or if you've been away from your home or whatever for a couple of days or even just like since the morning. See if it's just been a long day in that first sigh ah. when you come in the house yes, and sit down that very first... <sighs> yeah. That... That's a great. Example. That is magical because the the release that comes out of that and that just sense of like, and now I can be yeah, and that feeling. I wish I could harness that as well. Like I love those little tiny moments, or like when um, or like even something that's kind of um, that's kind of jovial, like. I also kind of love those moments if you like see if you act, you think you see someone in the street and you wave and it's not the right person and like that person doesn't know you and you're kind of like you're embarrassed to yourself and you have a little giggle like that kind of childish nostalgic like I feel like as adults we don't get those kind of yeah we, we don't appreciate it we don't, like we, don't appreciate that. we don't appreciate that vulnerability as much as we used to or I think it's more that we don't appreciate it because we feel like there's a vulnerability that comes in that and I think there's a lot exactly. of uh, suggestion that, or external suggestion that you get as adults that makes you scared to express that kind of thing. I think it's also, particularly within British culture, we are very much encouraged to remain uh, stoic and stiff upper-lipped about these experiences. Mm-hmm. But no, I definitely agree with you. Like For me, another example would be Umbrella Joe would be when your food arrives at a restaurant, oh. just as, as you oh. want it, and you can, see, you can see the steam of the heat coming off it because you're like, oh, it's been, mate, this is fresh. This is fresh, like that would be a perfect example. And then the, the chef's... That's a perfect yeah, example. Wait, and the waiter, waiting staff are like, anything else I can help you with? Oh, no, I'll take it from here. That's an example. <laughs> exactly. That's an example of unbridled joy. Uh, another example I discussed yesterday with my partner was um, is when you check in online and then just before you're about to leave on a flight to go on holiday, your phone reminds you and like shows you your boarding card just to remind you in a couple hours, you're going to be going on holiday like for me that is yeah. another example of unbridled joy um definitely recognize that one what would be another example um yeah 
I think it like yeah it for for me as well it's also like because I am so visually stimulated like that's like I'm so visually driven like when I'm out and about and I see like a really nice color combination uh-huh. like whether it be just literally like a fence in a front door like yeah. kind of overlapping and just two really nice color combinations I'm like it's yeah. just like I just love those little just meaningless things that just warm your brain, yeah. give it a little bit of a warm and fuzzy feeling. Yeah. But, I, but you're, I think it's an important point. I, I don't necessarily think that they're like necessarily insignificant. I think those small things all contribute to the larger picture. And I think there's probably looking out for those things and uh, trying to have your conscious mind take them in is important because Absolutely. a lot of the time you'll tend to miss those and maybe you'll only see them manifest like in a subconscious state like when you're dreaming and stuff so I think it's good to I think the, a big part of being able to experience unbothered joy is being openly receptive to taking that kind of thing definitely in. So uh, I think if you're aware of it that's 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 a massive thing and even since I've been having com- more conversations about it recently like I've had people message me and being like I've thought of another one yeah. and I'm like I love this because it's yeah setting your consciousness into like being open to receive joy and on the lookout for joy and recognizing what makes you happy because sometimes a lot of the time like when people say oh what makes you happy and it's like oh like my friends and my family uh-huh. and my dog and it's just like well of course they make you happy like do you know what i mean yeah. like it's yeah it's but i, th- but I think nice. it's but i think it's in i think it, it, it does it does definitely highlight an important point because i think it's one of the things is being that like a great way to shortcut uh, towards experiencing joy as an individual is to create a uh, situation that generates joy in somebody else. I think because we uh-huh. are a uh, social species, a lot of our feelings and our states of being do come from validation or recognition from another member of the species. So that's why I say for me, like obviously, like and and as I'm sure you're aware and you you've done lots of work on it, is that a lot of these things come with like dopamine releases. And definitely. for me, I think there's definitely a lot of dopamine releases that come from uh, yeah, just very small things where it could be like holding a door open for somebody else and them acknowledging it and saying thank you. For me, there's it's much more than just are you doing a favor. It's a very brief window of human connection whereby someone has recognized your empathy and is complimenting that by thanking you as well. And I think, yeah, that small instant of gratification um, can be uh, immensely helpful for people. I think there's a lot of opportunities for self gratification as well. But uh-huh. I think a lot of the time it could be uh, we can uh, deplete our reserves if our only focus is on self gratification. Because when we talk about it in terms of a biological way, there's a limited amount of chemical releases that we'll be able to handle. Um, but the problem is that, like with any drug, if you introduce it too often into your uh, biology, it, you can increase your tolerance to it, which can sometimes mean you're chasing a bigger high. And mm-hmm. so, so, you know, gratifying yourself sexually, like, you know, some people do with pornography, for example, can appear to be gratifying and bring you joy when you climax. But then if you get too used to that state, then you might start chasing much more extreme. Oh, yeah, too much of anything's a bad thing exactly, for yeah. sure. But so, but I think one of the great ways of remedying that is that when you do experience joy is to be like, oh, if I'm able to share this with somebody else, then I get to still enjoy the reciprocal joy from that other person and be in that presence. And that energy can benefit you, as I said, as a comedian. Like one of the first parts Cheer of like me. the comedian contract we have with the audience is: the more energy that you give them, the more energy you get back. And I think okay. that's for any creative or any person who's trying to take a conceptual or intangible uh, thing that's normally started off within their mind and make it into something perceivable with the five senses. I think that it's always important to be able to have that energy exchange between producer and consumer. And um, definitely, yeah, that, I think that's definitely how we could have a lot more joy. Um, I think uh, holding a newborn can bring you um, unbridled joy. And again, I think there's uh, social and chemical as well as aesthetic reasons for that. I think because of the fact that human beings later on in our life, we are uh, that that uh, openness to experience joy is kind of beaten out of us or it's suppressed. Absolutely. It means a lot of time what we tend to do is that we project onto other people. And it's almost like, well, I am either scared to, or I'm not able to um, locate that joy within myself or to appreciate that joy because maybe I'm comparing the, uh, I'm, I'm comparing the criteria for joy to somebody else's when everyone's catalyst for joy will vary. 
But I think that's the problem is that, yeah, that's a bit of a point. But that's, but that's also like it brings it back to that famous old saying of um, comparison is the thief of joy. Yes, and absolutely. And that's so true. And like that, but that is what's so beautiful. I, I, um, I completely agree with what you're saying in terms of like too much of a good thing is, 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 is bad. But also I think when it comes to joy, like I think because joy is definitely something, I know for, for, for me is something that um, it, it's all, even if it's just me who's receiving it, it's always going to be shared because yeah. it'll be something like, oh, I saw this, something and you'll always want to. Like I think passing it on is what makes joy so brilliant because it's free it can live in abundance and it can be spread far and wide. And so it's like, and it's really precious. It can be stolen, but then you can make it up again. Yes. It's the only thing So can it be stolen? Because that's why I use it as an energy because the definition of like, the, by, by like, you know, law of physics, energy can't be created or destroyed. So it's always going to be there. It's just whether or not we're open to receiving it and like I said, harnessing it and passing it on. Yeah. Because I think that like, for example, uh, love is, like experience and love can bring unbridled joy but then I mm-hmm. think when we start to contextualize love along the lines of it being a possession like this is our love or I love that person and they belong to me then we're leaving ourselves open to not experiencing the full amount of joy we can have whereas I think if you look at uh, being able to experience love and joy as an experience then it's mm-hmm. a, more rewarding because we're normally, normally aware from uh, human experience that we will not necessarily maintain that level of joy and other things may happen in our life where we go from joy to sorrow. And sometimes yes. that can be necessary because then we have that juxtaposition that this is how sorrow feels. So when I get to the point where I'm able to experience even a small window of joy again, I won't take it for granted and I will cherish that experience as well. And I think it's much more effective and much more likely for us to have multiple experiences of joy if we pass that on. Because if that energy is continuing oh, to be passed on, and as we said before at the start of the podcast, if we begin to normalize or present a particular type of pattern of behavior as right, then people are much more likely to repeat it. And so that's Absolutely. why I feel like, you know, experiencing joy should, is, is good to experience individual joy. But I think it's equally good to uh, have a shared experience of joy as well, because then it also means that you are able to uh, recant that to other people and maybe recant that journey in order for them to realize it as well. But um, yeah. yeah, I think that's so, so interesting. Like, um, because I never really thought about it, is, is separating it before, because for me, they're two of the same like I can't experience individual joy without sharing it right. but then and so it's really interesting that you put it that way because then yeah there there will be people who just keep it to themselves yep. and yeah I think I more just don't get that mentality yeah it, it, it's, 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 quite, <laughs> it's, it's like, quite a sociopathic one like, yeah because it means that yeah it means some people and, yeah. and I think I think it's the difference between confidence and arrogance is that confidence is about affirming a positive part of yourself or a positive experience or a positive trajectory you may have. Whereas arrogance normally is that you need to do the same, but compared to commenting on at somebody else's detriment. So mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm, confidence mm-hmm. is saying like, I'm great at this. Whereas arrogance is unlike you, I'm great at this. Exactly. And I, th- mm-hmm, and I think mm-hmm. the large amount of that is there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of capitalism that influences that as well, because I think that human beings, uh, joy and, uh, positive, uh, emotions, as a social species should all be shared experiences even if it's like you talk to somebody thinking about talk to somebody about something that makes you happy because the odds are that someone is someone you're in a paradigm of shared love or joy together they'll take mm-hmm. that board and be like oh i want to continue to feed into this energy or i need to learn from this experience so i can work out how to replicate it for that person and then reciprocally they'll be doing the same for you because you know if you love Absolutely. or care about somebody their joy is your joy really but I think that for sure capitalism has definitely fucked that, but it's definitely encouraged people to um, seek their own personal gratification. And I think going back to what you said before is that a large part of like capitalist doctrine is making people experience shame for joy they may have, which doesn't come through the merit of capitalism, which is why yeah. I said to talking about like sexual gratification, we talk about like people having kinks and those kinks or inclinations or proclivity being shamed. And that can create an issue as well because if there's something that can bring someone true joy and gratification, but they're scared to express it to another party or to express it uh, on a macro social level, then it means that they're being rubbed of joy because they're trying to adhere to social standards or, mm-hmm. or what we perceive to be a social etiquette. 
Yeah, it's f- so funny that you like um, mind reader that you brought up shame because that's what I was, I was literally about to move into that as well because it's because um, one of my um, recent joyful discoveries was discussing my shame uh-huh. because as a late diagnosed person, there was so many things that I just kept under wraps that I really really struggled with and I was too scared to talk about or like you know. Things that, especially because I would go, I went to my doctor and said, like, look, I'm experiencing all, like, all these things. And they're like, yeah, you're, um, you're bipolar. Yes. You're, oh, no, no, you're not bipolar. You're, you're actually got borderline personality disorder. And then it turns out it was just ADHD and autism. Oh, my God. Um, and so, so that is a big, uh, difference, uh, big difference between those things despite the spectrum. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, um, added more shame because I was being told I was things and I was going home and researching and it wasn't that and so I felt misunderstood so I would just push it all down further and further and further and then when I got my diagnosis um, two years ago um, I've started talking about it and the amount of joy and release it gets like from seeing someone else is going oh my god I've done that my whole entire life I've told no one and it feels like just I just get this visual representation of like the Grinch's heart growing three times bigger. Yeah. And it's like, that's like my little shame monster is like softening yeah. and like allowing me to like do these things, but not be self-deprecating. Uh-huh. And then and the more that happens to me, the more I want to make sure that that's going to other people because as a 36 year old woman and carrying all that, it's, it's heavy. And so it's like to be carrying all that for so long and, thinking all these things are bad or wrong or you're broken and it's just like but the amount of joy that can be made in in making someone else feel not broken is like uh, unfathomable yeah exactly (laughs) and that's it and that's it is it it comes down to energies and and that's the thing i I think that's a great point is that like when it comes to these experiences and these positive emotions the uh capacity for uh large humanitarian benefit can't necessarily measured and I definitely don't think it's something that you can put a price on either. So, uh, mm. yeah, I think that's a great way of putting it. And, uh, yeah, a really, really good question. We'll be back after this. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome back to the show. And also helps me with my question, because obviously you spoke about becoming aware of your neurodivergence and uh, being able to speak on that has been beneficial for you because it's been a weight lifted off your shoulders and also the responses from people who have had similar experiences or been able to now look into their own neurodivergence um, has been massively beneficial. And I think obviously understanding neurodivergence uh, is an ongoing dynamic study Um, and I think that based on recent findings I think most people if they were to be diagnosed or looked into it probably have even some an infinitesimal amount of neurodivergence themselves or like you said it can be a question of nature versus nurture and certain experiences can be a catalyst to create those neurodivergences so my question to you would be do you how far off do you think we are in study of neurodivergence? So the point where we recognise that maybe people who are described as neurodivergent aren't actually divergent from the norm at all. Ridiculously far. I don't think in my lifetime 
Yeah. It'll be like, and I think that's really sad to say, but I think because just with my own personal experiences, because, um, especially a lot of people who are late diagnosed, like have to go through the seven stages of grief and whether that's late diagnosed, uh, practitionally, because a uh, diagnosis is a privilege and not everybody can get it. And so that's why self diagnosis is completely valid. It's a big debate within the community. Well, actually, I would say it's a big debate more outside the community. Like the most of the neurodivergent community understand itself how important self diagnosis is because it's the step towards finding your answers. Um, but then it seems to be that it angers a lot of neurotypicals. It's like, oh, but you're not a psychologist, and it's just like, oh. But also. It's it's like I I saw this tweet that was fantastic and it was just like oh but everyone um but everyone does that and everyone does this and so how can it be autistic or ADHD and it's like well yeah Karen everybody pees but <laughs> that but if you do it sixty times a day it's an issue yeah so or if it burns that's <laughs> <laughs> exactly so it's like just because it's it's common with everyone doesn't mean that you have an issue with it. And so, um, the, uh, what I found anyway, upon all my reflections, is that I first start. I first went to the doctor about um, my mental health slash um, neurodivergent difficulties when I was fourteen years old, okay. and I continued to go back to the doctor pretty consistently every few years. And I would see that I would literally be describing a uh, woman's experience, um, like of neurodivergence and because all of the research is all kind of all based on young boys and like just the way that they would behave and women are just conditioned women and girls are just this con- is this a very, conditioned so differently I'm glad you brought up because a very good point because to be quite honest with you to hear people tell it within mainstream medical studies neurodivergence in women barely existed because like you'd read in like old like in like the 60s and 70s if a woman was ex- was displaying any neurodivergence they'd be like Put her in a madhouse. She is hysterical. Hysteria, yeah, they would call it. Yeah. yeah, she's hysterical. And uh, or you know, you know what sold that woman out who might be experiencing some difficulty? A lobotomy. That was so right mm-hmm. out. That's the thing. The women got too much brain up there. You got to get rid of it. Something. Let's <laughs> <laughs> <It's laughs> out. That's that's uh, that's how uh, sensitive uh, study into neurodiversity in women was. Like even like even where the point where I, I would argue that the autistic spectrum. Has made its way into uh, mainstream uh, culture. Misogyny, um, yeah, or, or even main, <laughs> yeah, even mainstream misogyny. Because sometimes now a guy can be flippantly rude or misogynistic or aggressive, and people be like, yeah, he must just be on the spectrum. Whereas you know, women, if women display autism, it's like she's she's crazy. That there's, she's just a crazy bitch. A, that's, yeah. that's a crazy <laughs> bitch who can't handle things. She needs a scalpel or some dick. That's what she needs. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no it's so true and when you just said there about it, it like about doctors not understanding even my own gp who's still in my practice and um, because i had to go for I, I initially went for private diagnosis because the waiting list was so long um and i came back with my private diagnosis and i was told off of like a doctor in my um, in my gp practice that it by a man he's just like no that can't that can't be true because ADHD doesn't exist in women. <laughs> he literally, and I, and that was literally two and a half years ago. Um, that, like, and so, 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 so and, just, and I'd already just had a pan- private diagnosis. Before the pandemic, they were like, yeah, there's, there's no reason why women having to sit down and, and buy themselves in a house would ever be affected by that. So yeah, whatever. <laughs> Crazy. And it was just literally like, but here's some more antidepressants. And I was literally like, but I don't. And I was put on antidepressants when I was really, really young and it made me really, really ill. Wonder why? Because I had a dopamine deficiency. Right. Le- it wasn't. I left out one thing as well. And then he probably went, Is is menstruation a problem? Is it your period? Yeah. Are you period in uh, it up no, right totally. now? <laughs> mm-hmm. Honestly, it's it was just it's it's awful. And so I think that um we need to get to the bottom of like we need to research more both in women and in late diagnosis and in young just more research needs to happen in general um and even just like the different 
it shouldn't be such a privilege to have a diagnosis either. Uh-huh. Like, um, so in Scotland, like down in England, they've got this um, thing called right to choose, right. and it's through um, Psychiatry UK. And although that there is like a year long waiting list for that now, it means that because through the NHS, it's a three year waiting list. So Psychiatry UK is a private body that you can get a kind of short track diagnosis through through their period uh, before their with their private entity. Scotland doesn't have that at all. So you either pay for private or you wait for your three years. But the difference is, is in England, if you wait for your three years, if you get it done privately or you get seen through Psychiatry UK, they do shared care. As in, the your your GP practice will like work with your um, with the private care to make sure to get your medication and do all that. Again doesn't really happen in scotland it's a postcode lottery some gps work with private people uh, private doctors some gps don't um and the way it turns out with the more research that i'd done um shared care is pretty much non-existent when it comes to adhd medication and it's been considered as a luxury the same as fertility when it comes to women wow and so i'm like how can you put fertility like how can you put these two? One is like an act, like affects your day to day life. The other one is a choice. Like not everyone wants to have babies. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like you know, it, it blows my everybody, mind. Um, everybody wants to be able to like think straight, survive, and survive, and be able to make sense <laughs> of their reality. Funnily enough, in fact, I'd say that there's a Venn diagram where expectant or aspiring mothers would also want to be able to have their uh, neurodivergence kind of diagnosed or analysed before having children. So. Yes, exactly. And especially because um, it's you're so high likely to um, to have a child that's also neurodivergent. Like, you're, uh, like, I can't remember the actual stat, but I do believe it is close to 90% that you will get a neurodivergent, you will have a neurodivergent child. That's not necessarily to mean that if you have autism, your child will be autistic, but they will, they will neuro, live neuro, somewhere neuro, on the neurodivergence spectrum. Neurodivergence is in itself, and that's what I mean. I think that as a field of study, as as much as there is an autistic spectrum, there's obviously a neurodivergent spectrum, which, uh, mm-hmm. as we already seen, I see it as a pie. Yeah, like I don't see it as a line. I see it as a pie chart, and it's almost like, um, and it's and it frustrates me so much because this is where like people can be so ableist when it comes to like, so if someone um has high support needs in terms of like maybe they're non-verbal. Uh-huh. They get treated. So imagine this, the pie chart of neurodivergence and their verbal, non-verbal part of the pie is full. But then everything else is like tiny. Yeah. They get treated like they're stupid because it's like the most, it's the part that affects society the most. Yeah. Whereas because like I can speak and, you know, do different things, it's like, oh, well, it can't be that bad. And it's just like, yes, but also what about the fact that like, you know, I need to like give myself per- self permission to pee. I need to do certain tasks before I allow myself to go to the bathroom. Like what about like when I go into the supermarket and I literally have like a panic attack because there's just too much happening and like, and then leave without yeah. being able to get anything Or, or just being out in any co- capitalist society and being massively overstimulated and having a sensory overload. I don't imagine it's particularly fun for anyone who's Exactly. Uh, so there's all these things. And yeah, it's, it's it's there's a long way to go. Um, I think for us to get to a level of understanding, but I think that it starts with people actually taking it seriously. And when someone's talking about their experience, they're not just like, oh, well, I mean, I do that too. And it's yeah. like, Are there- don't minimize people's experiences. Yeah, and and, and which is a, uh, I mean. Which is a weird thing that we're able to minimize uh, when people are expressing a need for empathy. Whereas when it comes yeah. to like people's joy, we're like, ah, calm down, mate, calm down. So it's, it's strange. Are, are there any tells or are there any practices that people can do maybe on a microsocial, familial level or interpersonal level where we can help people who may be showing early signs of neurodivergence? Uh, absolutely. Like, I think that, like, uh, to be honest, I think that... Uh, if there's someone who is um, who you think is neurodivergent or whatever, like I think showing any sort of like showing that you understand them and just like 
a big trigger is feeling like a burden, feeling misunderstood and that like you're a bother to people. Uh-huh. And so I think that it's like, let that person know that they're not a bother. Yeah. And like it's in the, the accommodations that they need aren't that big of a deal. Like there'll be times where I'll be out and literally like it, I'll be in a pub or in a restaurant or whatever. And my friend will look at me and they'll see that I'm literally like this. And I'm just very over. I'm not getting involved in conversation. I'm not starting conversation. I'm just very much like this. And my friend will literally be like, oh, do you want to like, um, uh, do you want to pop outside? Or like, yeah. let's go to the bathroom. I want to show you this. And like, instead of, because like, they'll see that I almost like, oh no, I don't want to leave the table because then that's bringing attention uh-huh. to myself. It's just like, I think having my friends just notice that and do that for me and showing that level of care and compassion like allows me to then have more compassion for myself as well. Yeah, which is a, is, I mean, it's a great thing. And again, it's interesting that again, it starts with something that's esoteric before like mm-hmm. being quite external. I, um, I wanted to go back to what I was saying before about like obviously neurodivergence versus uh, neuro being neurotypical because I said not to be like, you know, I do that and trying to reduce things, but I think it's, the lack of diagnosis is the problem, but I think if there was more time and, I guess, intelligence invested in studying neurodivergence, would it would it would probably people discover a lot more aspects of their own being as neurodivergent? Because, for example, it's like there's a lot of traits that we uh, socially laud about people that excel in business or are captains of industry, but then when we do psychiatric studies, like these are the uh, calling cards of a sociopath or a psychopath. So not actually good things. And I was just wondering if there's like, like parts of like the human experience or certain elements or traits of human behavior, which we historically kind of maybe put down. I said to hysteria, but really it's someone showing neurodivergence. And, and, and is it that maybe we're underestimating the number of people that have a form of neurodivergence oh, wow. or whatever or not? So what, what I guess I'm trying to say is that like it's, I guess neurodivergence is, is a recently new term we found to describe or well, it's normally be a derogatory term where someone would say you're mentally disabled or you, you're mental. Is is the case really a lot more of us are more mental than we actually think we are? Absolutely, I think so. And especially because um, we have all these past generations like I, uh, that like, oh, I don't like a label. Oh, no, 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 no. You just get on with it. And um, I just said that very British mentality of like, keep calm and carry on kind of thing. And so I think that again, it's like, it's, breaking down because even when you look at like you know mental illnesses like the generations before us um like very much struggled to be able to like admit that they had something wrong with them yeah um but then when you actually look at as you said all of the most like i think the top 10 most successful slash richest people in the world all autistic and adhd yeah every single one of them but you'll also find that all of them are aware of it so they make their own accommodations right. and they don't apologize for them uh-huh. they're like no this is just the way my brain works like and some of it has been taken on and and been on these books which neurotypicals have written about how to be the top businessman and like you know how many articles has it been put about steve jobs having his uniform yes you know so many and how, so it takes time off the day that is he said the reason why i came was like I wanted, I didn't want to have to think about it. Did it, it. And now that has been like a, an autistic um, cheat. Yeah. Forever. And so it's literally, it's just like taking. So actually, I think that whether you're neurodivergent or neurotypical, the cheats that we learn because our brains work differently work for everyone. And so if, if people were kind of less so like seeing things as like, I hate how it's seen as like a fad or like fashionable or whatever just because lots of people are talking about it and cult, like, do, you, do you think but do you think it's been co-opted a lot for people who to maybe explain away more i guess uh anti-social behaviors because i think in, I in the think, case of uh like the aforementioned like billionaires and leaders of industry i don't think that neurodivergence predisposes you to have a lack of social etiquette or to be rude to people oh well yeah, think, it, can, it can do but, but yeah but again it's it's i think that's, I guess that's what I'm trying to find. It, it can do, and it can make you appear to be curt or short with people. But as you said before, it seems that there's a bias in that if you are cisgender, heterosexual male, and you're wealthy, 
Yes. That's fine. Whereas if you're a woman, you're you don't have manners, you're 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 aggressive or or if you're poor or you're aggressive if you're as not- well. Even if you're not neurodivergent, uh, if you're neurotypical, you get away with that as a man. Because right. at the end of the day, like for, for me, that's what, what was meaning that retort that we can. Because like my autistic side is like I'm such a literal thinker, and like and when you said that, like, oh, do you think it could be taken advantage of? Again, my autism comes into the play because I just like I, I don't like to believe that way of people. Like yeah. I'm very tr- like I can be very, and that's a big. That's what again. This is what I hate when people are like, five signs you may be autistic, five signs you may be ADHD. It kind of doesn't really, sometimes they don't cover the, the dangers as well. It's just like you can be overly trusting, you can be quite easily manipulated. You could like, because yeah, I would just like, I think because of the amount of struggles that ADHD and autism can bring, and especially like when you live with them comorbidly obviously I can't speak for people who just have ADHD or just have autism because I like mine work together in a way that actually is pretty complementary that has helped which has led to my late diagnosis um because the two kind of like work together to balance each other out in a way but I just don't like to think that people would want to have this as an excuse because it just comes with so much shit that, like, yeah. it's like you don't want this. <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. But it, you know, it's it's a uh, it, it, as as morbid as it would be to suggest. I think nowadays, because pop psychology, it must exist. Yeah, and, and pop psychology can be very lucrative. So someone can always present if if the idea is that you know, in the same way that you've showed your story to other people, if people if some people were under the supposition that it became lucrative, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd see a lot more people being a lot more vocal about their neurodivergence. I guess, but I am. Um, uh, but obviously, with your late diagnosis and oh, being able well, to disseminate yeah, information, like, um, does that give you a, a sense of optimism? Mostly for me, it's brought out my kind of, um, very much like my sense of justice um, in terms of I need to, right, well, I figured this out and like, I need to, I need to save the world. <laughs> it's like, um, and I think that's why, like, I mean, I've got my little, my little slice of the internet and like, I'm ve- it's just this like little late nice bub. It's a little bubble that I just want to give people comfort and peace and compassion. Like that's all I want. Like that. It's such a lonely place when you're living with it and all of these things buzzing about your head. It's it's so lonely and sometimes absolutely terrifying. And so like. I think after I've found out and made some friends within the community and shared shame and all of that, it's, I'd say that that's healed me. Like the, the connection with the community has healed me more than my official diagnosis. Like you could, like it's uh-huh. massive. Well, feeling, feeling less alone is always going to be a very positive uh, state of being for human beings to uh, experience. Yeah, I feel yeah. like loneliness, in respect of what you believe, loneliness is true hell for all human beings as a social species. And I think it's very difficult nowadays where a lot of the uh, narratives that we hear in pop psychology or mainstream psychology or fair, fair weather psychology is that self-love and self-preservation and take this time when, you know, it's not always necessarily healthy to just con- be completely cerebral and to be kind of like solitary when you're uh you know which is also so cool because it's so guess, hard to sometimes it, like we find it so hard to kind of create because like, and maintain long-lasting friendships as well so it's it's such a cruel little juxtaposition of like yes you you crave the community and all this but then also shant <laughs> So yeah, I guess it's very. It could be very difficult, especially when you are so hypersensitive to your own to yourself, because you kind of have to be because there's so much going on. Do you see that? Is that it's community growing? It's a beautiful growing? thing. I love it. There's so many wonderful pages on Instagram. Yeah. There's groups on Facebook, and like that's what I always say to people who do like. Cause, I mean, I really struggle to make long lasting friendships. I've got like a minuscule inner circle. Um, I know lots of people, but um. Yeah, the inner circle is very small. Um, but since um, I started connecting within um, the groups, I've started to make some really beautiful, like that kind of like pen pal connection kind of thing. And it's it's really beautiful because um, 
there's no expectation. It's not that like, you know, if it's your best friend, you're like, oh, I've not spoke to so-and-so in a few days. I better do this or I better do that. It's like, it's really nice because when you're when you're kind of communicating with other neurodivergents, we all just get each other. So you could be like talking for two hours and then not speak for two months and then just pick up the phone and then be like this massive overshare and it's just not even questioned. So you can just kind of feel a bit more relaxed. It's it's a uh, it's wonderful to see everyone connecting and sharing their experiences. It's cool. It's and uh, I and you've seen that on globally as well. That that's uh, a community that's. Gaining solidarity and, and strength. I think it would be really nice to see more in person, but I just also think that like a big neurodivergent meetup would also be hell for everyone going. <laughs> so it's like, how do you arrange? How do you arrange something? <laughs> <laughs> where where do exactly. we have it? I suggest Trocadero. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> we're all, we're all going to meet at Asper's Casino. So, yeah. <laughs> And we'll have oh, sex honestly. by Skrillex and the Blue Man Group. Let's get a party going. Oh, that's cool, though. I mean, well, I can definitely see the unbridled joy face in you right now. So, again, and I, I think it's, it's really interesting in terms of how the conversation all dovetails because obviously we discussed, like, you know, people experiencing unbridled joy and how reciprocal that is. And it's very interesting that what you describe as what's been one of the biggest catalysts to. Um, galvanizing the neurodivergent community has been that same empathy and that same recanting of experiences of joy or alleviating the stress and the shame of neurodivergence with other, for lack of a better expression, like-minded people. So it's good that, you know, it's, um, it seems like, you know, just being nice for the sake of being nice seems to work. Yes. Irrespective of how your, uh, your brain is wired, which is, uh, is very good. And it's also interesting that that's, where you've seen the most significant uh, progress as opposed to the actual scientific or neurological field of study. It's been down to the community coming together. And uh, yeah, takes a village. Oh, it, it <laughs> really does, especially because um, there's been things that I've like researched, like as I was talking in the community the other day, like how, so I struggle to like, um, so I, I'm, I'm, spontaneous spending is a big trait in ADHD and something that I struggle with a lot and it is just that quick dopamine and it's just like it's just spontaneous and you just need it and you can't explain it and blah blah so I will be really spontaneous and I will buy something like um like it, th- this example was like a um a necklace with diamante vegetables that just made uh-huh. me very happy and I didn't think about splurging on that yet Everyone within the neurodivergent community, my mum, my any one of my friends, everybody, like I really struggle with um, cooking and deciding, decision what to eat and all that, and just try to work it out. And is that and is that from the uh, ADHD yes. or the autism? You think Both. Oh, yeah. because it's because yeah. autism is textures, and then um, yes. and then uh, ADHD, ADHD is. is like permission. <laughs> I need to like do yeah. something. Ah. So it's like ah, okay. the two of them together. Um, it makes a lot more sense than you think it does, actually. Exactly. <laughs> and then it's about being able to get the food and then make the food and then do the things. And it's like, sometimes it can be too overwhelming. So it's a lot of like... Um, I, I imagine I imagine an autistic person having to work in like a busy kitchen. <laughs> unless their uh, uh, special interest is food. Yes. Then no. And this is what I mean, is that like, not necessarily like I'm calling for like specialization along the lines of where you sit on the spectrum or with ADHD. But that's why I, I just think with the neurodivergence, I think in the same way that like, you know, people argue about like certain disabilities, it's not necessarily that someone is disabled, it's just that they happen to try and work within a environment that doesn't lend to said disability because someone who's visually impaired or blind, for example, may appear at a disadvantage to us. But if we have a power cut and all the lights go out, that person is the most able person in the room. Right. And I just wonder if we could take that same logic and apply it to like, like you said, if there is somebody who is ADHD but have a particular interest where it might be just looking at the, uh, you know, analyzing code or it could be like working in the kitchen. I think there is an application for that, which isn't necessarily neurodivergent and maybe the lack of study in terms of it allowing people to find a purpose and be still be able to work within society and not feel shame and not feel ostracized. Well, this is the thing is, what we're largely missing. Like, neurodivergent people, and like, and it's, it's widely known 
a neurodivergent person can like if the if, if if someone a neurodivergent person if they're hyper focusing in a task for like three hours could do as much work as what a neurotypical person could probably do in that one week and <laughs> because yeah. the amount of like it's because yeah. they they literally don't even pretty much breathe you don't come up for air and it's like yeah. and i've i've been saying that like literally get and, a and bunch it's, gra- of and it's neuro- gratifying for them as well yeah. it's gratifying for them as well they love it's it like, you want to take a break leave me the fuck alone i'm bye. working <laughs> yeah bye don't yeah, talk yeah, to me don't touch it. me <laughs> um and so it's like as i was saying it like but get um forget about like you know political parties i want a neurodivergent party who just have a hyper focus on politics and they will have the country fixed in a night (laughs) absolutely i think i think i think that's great i think if there was someone who was really interested in microbiology who could be working on sanitation treatments or someone who has a has hyper focus on hydrocarbons could be working on how to reduce like you know the use of single-use plastic or someone who's interested in marine biology or, you know, kind of like, I suppose, hydropathy in general could be working on water filtration. This is what I mean, is that it's like, I guess that's why, and it's, it's very easy and artsy-fartsy for me to say, but I just think that it's like, it's not necessarily that people are, are neurodivergent, it's that they've not been able, they've not been allowed to have the uh, task or purpose that allows their divergence to focus yeah oh, oh, like they're just not not found their thing <laughs> yeah but, um, and, and there's but, not enough research goes into helping them find that and what people's interests are yeah because it's almost like there's a presumed lack of awareness or a lack of intellect of that person so allow that person to find a field or study or a uh raison d'etre to thrive within mm-hmm. um but just on that last bit the uh so like so i got the necklace and it's all my friends were telling me to get an air fryer and how it's going to change mm-hmm. my life a year and a half, I didn't buy this air fryer. I bought, I said, like, I bought a corn stool. Yep. I bought, um, like, like uh, all of these, like, a, 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 a candle that's shaped like a hot dog. Uh, countless amounts of clothes, like, all these different things. Spent so much money on all of this stuff that either has a face on it or shaped like a piece of food. But I couldn't buy this air fryer and it was because like it was like a good thing for me and I knew that it was going to be goodness and it's like there's this kind of underlying thing that you don't deserve it that's that comes with late diagnosis and it's just like no I just need the spontaneous thing so I did a TikTok that was just like because I I had um I I googled and was trying to see like is this a common thing when you have divergence I don't really know like do we struggle to buy practical because it doesn't give the dopamine or is there any other reasons behind it? And we, and couldn't see anything. Literally, it, Google was telling me zilch. So I did a TikTok about it. And the amount of comments, I was like, yup, yup. Um, I um, haven't been able to buy myself pants for over a year. All my pants are holy. I still can't buy my pants. But yeah, I went and bought all of these inanimate objects last week. And it's like, all these, other, it's all these different comments with all these different examples. And that, I was literally like, this just shows you like because that hasn't even been studied because i bet you that's not even considered in the kind of male realm of adhd and autism because they are not in charge of buying the practical shit yeah well they and so also it's like also you, so you it wouldn't you be talked about you could put it in a man you could put it in a man cave and they'd be like yeah that belongs there so it's fine exactly no, it, and so that's it's, why it's not being talked well, about or researched so i think that like yeah once the like because the, the community is given more than what's available in the research like we've got a long ass way to go <laughs> well yeah a great a great way to put it and a great way to end it that it's it might be a long way to go but if working together we're more likely to get there a lot quicker and uh absolutely sherry sherry slash betty it has been an uh, absolute pleasure to uh, explore the various uh pathways within your neurodivergence um thank you very much for taking the time and remaining hyper focused on the podcast because <laughs> uh you held our attention for the whole time and I uh, can't thank you enough. Sherry, could you do me a favour just before we wrap up? Could you let our uh, listeners and viewers know where they can find out more about your good works and research past, present and future? Of course. So you can find me on Instagram or TikTok at Forever Yours Betty. And um, I will also be bringing out a podcast later in the year, which will be called A Slice of Nice, which is going to be all about 
those little slices of joy that we're talking about and how do we celebrate them? I think it's the loveliest thing that you process your reality using pies. <laughs> oh, always fidgeted. Listen, everyone's got... Listen, if it, helps you, if it helps you to make your way in the world, then, you know, I'll take a slice of that pie. Yeah. All good. Well, Sherry, thank you very much for coming on Dame Baptiste Questions Everything. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. It's been a pleasure, Ring. You've been listening to Dane Baptiste Questions Everything, hosted by Dane Baptiste and myself, Howard Cohen. For more from Dane and myself, make sure you follow us on Instagram at DaneSnapTeast and at the Howard Cohen. You can now support us on Patreon. Just search DBQE Podcast and unlock ad-free content and you can watch the full-length video of the podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for Dane, make sure you send us a DM on Instagram at DBQE Podcast and we could feature you in our next episode. Thanks for listening, guys. And remember, question everything. Insanity Group. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. 